Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Business Owners Radio, where established business owners get the latest insights, strategies, and practices to grow a sustainably profitable business. And now, taking care of business, your hosts, Craig Moen and Shai Gilad. Welcome to Business Owners Radio, Episode 40. Today we will focus on the research results and impacts social influence has on our lives and how it plays an important role in business every day. Jonah Berger, author of the newly released book Invisible Influence, will join us to talk about this fascinating topic. Good morning, Shy. Good morning, Craig. Hey, Shy. Have you ever felt that you were in the middle of a market segment? Yeah, I remember when we first moved out to the suburbs about 10 years ago. And I remember I was in this new neighborhood and there was people from all over the world. And I remember thinking about, wow, this is so great. This is such a diverse group of people. And with the exception that we were all around the same age, you know, maybe plus or minus five years, I thought this is going to be really cool. And it was really cool. And one day I was driving home and at the time I had this black Nissan Xterra that I really loved because it was kind of the truckiest kind of SUV you could have. And I had a truck growing up and I just loved that vehicle. And I remember driving into my what I thought was super diverse neighborhood and noticing that there was three other black Xterras on my very small block <laughs> of like, yeah, six of my new friends, four of us had black Xterras. <laughs> and I thought, you know, maybe uh, we're not so different. Oh, it's amazing. You know, the shared behaviors and social behaviors and influences in my neighborhood. People have Mercedes and Prius, both, because it depends on where they're going to, what image they're trying to be a part of, if you will, on a market basis. So it's fascinating. Yeah, and you don't even really see it coming, you know, and I understand that our guest today was actually inspired by observing just this phenomenon with vehicles. Our guest today is Jonah Berger. Jonah is a marketing professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. He has published dozens of articles in top-tier academic journals, and popular accounts of his work often appear in newspapers and periodicals such as the New York Times, Science, and the Harvard Business Review. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Contagious, Why Things Catch On. His latest book, Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior, provide the foundation for our show today. Good morning, Jonah. Welcome to Business Owners Radio. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show today. Jonah, after launching your previous best-selling book, by the way, best-selling in this case is the New York Times bestseller list, which is a major accomplishment. That book was contagious. What inspired you to write this latest release of Invisible Influence? Invisible influence is really a response to many of the questions that came up after Contagious. It's not a sequel in, in the sense, though, that it's about the same ideas, but it's really about how influence affects almost every area of our lives and how by understanding influence and how it works, we can be happier, healthier, and more successful. And you've conducted hundreds of experiments for over many years examining the effects of social influence. Tell us about some of the results that actually surprised you. 
You know, we've done hundreds of studies, as you mentioned, on everything from human motivation to persuasion. But I'll start with an anecdote because I think it's very telling for the book as a whole. You know, a few years ago, I mentioned to my father that I was doing research in this space, and he was lamenting the effect of social influence on his peers. He said, oh, God, you know, D.C. lawyers, they're all the same. They make it big, and the first thing they do is they go out and they buy a BMW. And I said, well, Dad, that's interesting that people behave the same way, but aren't you a D.C. lawyer? And and don't you actually drive a BMW? And he said, yeah, but, you know, they all drive gray ones and I drive a blue one. And what I found so interesting about that idea and really use that to motivate the book is a couple things. First, we do see influence sometimes. We see other people driving similar cars or, or listening to similar music. And in fact, if we look around in the world, there's one place we consistently never see influence, and that is ourselves. We see it in others, but we never see how it affects our own behavior, even though it does. And secondly, it's not just as simple as influence leads us to do the same thing as others. In the case of my dad's car, for example, sure, he was buying the same brand as other people, but he was buying a different color. And so when does influence lead us to do the same thing as others? When does it lead us to do something different? When does it motivate us to take action? When does it demotivate us or cause us uh, to give up? And so invisible influence is really about trying to understand these influences and the push and pull they have on us and how we can use them more effectively. John, what first got you interested in the subject? You know, ever since I was a kid, I I grew up studying the hard science and and computer science. And I love the methods that those disciplines had, you know, rigorous experimentation, designing studies to test things, but would notice similar things going on in the social world. Would wonder why a person did what they did, why they bought or why they behaved the way they behaved. In particular, I always found trends really interesting. Why do some things catch on and become popular and others die out and become abandoned? And so started applying those same tools, those rigorous hard science tools to more soft science questions. And it's been a great opportunity over the years to kind of study some of these things that we all might see in our environment, but not have the time or opportunity to really study in depth. Jono, we would like to think we're all rational decision makers, as you mentioned, and we all do our due diligence and research the facts and we make this rational decision. In your book, you bring out the social influence side of the equation, as you mentioned. And how does that affect some of our other behaviors that we don't really realize? You know, we all like to think that we make our own choices from the the simple things like what breakfast cereal movie to see this upcoming weekend to the much bigger, more complicated things. You know, which person should we hire? Should we take on a new client? Should we merge with a new firm? And and we think those decisions lie within us, but actually we're we're quite wrong. If you look around, 99.9% of decisions, it's hard to find a decision that isn't affected is affected by others. And it's not just the others we might think. It's not just the friends or colleagues or family members. It's even others we don't realize. The person next to us on the subway or the person standing next to us at the gym. Importantly, though, as you noted, it's not that this is irrational somehow. But, you know, imagine if you couldn't talk to others or listen to others when making an important decision. You know, if you had to find a new car mechanic, you couldn't ask anybody else. It'd be pretty difficult. So often, relying on others can be a helpful tool. That said, it's not always a helpful tool. And so what's important to understand is when influence is helpful and when it isn't, when it helps us better decisions and when it leads to worse ones. Yeah, you know, the first thing I think about is Yelp and how this has become the way that we now make simple buying decisions, whether it be 
where do I eat dinner tonight? Or Amazon has taught us all to look at how many stars we have before we buy something. And it's kind of funny because when you really think about what you're doing, you're listening to the opinion of a bunch of people you don't even know. Yeah, and it's so powerful. I'm actually reading at the moment uh, a book about Amazon. Interesting to see sort of how uh, they went about building the brand. One thing they decided really early is that the uh, reviews, those customer reviews, that user generated was very helpful for particularly buying things on the web and particularly for buying things that you didn't know a lot about, but also create a barrier to future companies coming in and taking their marketplace. But I think that's the power of influence in today's digital age. It used to be, sure, we asked our friends and our neighbors, oh, you know, do you know a good mechanic? Do you know a good babysitter? But what about when we're trying to decide about which place to go on vacation. We can ask our friends, but our friends may not know any better. And sometimes our friends have one opinion, but we might want multiple opinions. What if that friend doesn't have the same opinions we do always? And so online reviews can be a powerful tool to help us make both better and faster decisions. That said, they can also just astray. You know, too often, for example, on Yelp, we focus on the exact rating. This place has 3.5 stars and that place has three. Well, does that mean the place with 3.5 is better for us? On average, people are saying it's better, but it's, it's really important to think of who are those people. Do they have the same preferences as I do, or do they have different preferences? Too often, we might end up following people even if they have different ideas than we do. And so it's really important to understand who those others are before we follow them. Are you amazed at how quickly this has evolved, where we're now willing to extend basically a proxy for trust <laughs> into the ether versus our neighbor? Well, think about it. And I see it in both sides. And, and part of Invisible Influence, by the way, is, is really seeing it from a round, full 360 perspective, both the upsides and, and the downsides. Uh, in terms of the upsides, you know, God, there's a wealth of information that others have. Wouldn't it be great to tap that wealth of information? Think about buying a house, for example. If we're looking at 10 different houses that a real estate agent sends us, one thing we do outside of figuring out whether we like it, well, we look at the number of days it's been on the market. Why do we do that? Well, we assume if it's been on the market for a lot of days, not so good, right? Maybe there's something bad about it. When we look at restaurants and we're just walking around on a street trying to figure out which one to go to, we look for a place that's full. Why? Because we assume if it's full, it, it must be good. And so others do provide this information, heuristic, if you will, that, that helps us make choices. That said, often we rely on that uh, more than our own eyes. Too often I ask friends where we should go to dinner and they spend minutes, if not almost an hour, sort of debating these two or three places on Yelp. We could just walk around the corner, take a look at them, and make a much faster decision. And so these tools can be effective, but only if we use them in the right way. You know, one of the things that you discuss in your book is that availability heuristic. And there was one example that just completely blew me away. And that was the Katrina naming example. And, and this, I guess, is sensitive, too, because my name is Shy, which is a fairly unique name in America. But it turns out in Israel is a fairly common name. But this example just completely blew me away. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. And this is a great example of the subtle and, and often non-conscious influences that others have on our behavior. So think about naming, in this case, naming a child. And why do people pick one name versus another? Well, if you ask them, they'll give you a very simple, straightforward answer. We liked it better. Why did you like it better? Oh, well, you know, we liked the way it sounded, or our uncle had a similar name, or we did it to honor a, a grandparent. And that all makes sense. But if you look at it, 
Naming is actually much more complicated, you might think. So we looked at why some names become popular uh, and others become unpopular. And we looked at over 100 years of naming data, um, over 240 million births, which names became more popular and less popular over time. And as you noted, we found a couple interesting things. One was that hurricane, and that makes sense. You would think that after Hurricane Katrina, for example, popularity of the name Katrina would go down. But it actually wasn't that simple. When we looked at the data, we found that K names, not just Hurricane, not just Katrina, but names that began with the letter K actually were 10% more popular after Hurricane Katrina. And so it wasn't just that it was affecting whether people named their children Katrina, but it was affecting whether they gave their children's name to begins with K in the first place. Why would that be? Why would Hurricane Katrina cause us to be more likely to name our children with K names? And it turns out that hearing something or seeing something more frequently makes you like it more. So the more you hear a name like Katrina, for example, or the more you see an ad for a product, the more you like that name or you like that product. But as our research showed, it wasn't just that name or that product you like. You also like similar things, other things that sound or or look similar. Cars, for example, are, are more likely to sell better if they look similar in some way, shape, or form to other cars on the market. In this case, that whether a, a hurricane or due to other names being popular, similar names but different names did better. And so if Katrina is popular, for example, Kathy or Katie or even Carl, names that begin with that hard K sound are more likely to be popular because people hear that name more. K sounds better to them, but they want to do something different. And so that was a big theme of the book in general is this similarity and difference at the same time. We don't just pick the same thing. We pick something that's similar but different as a way to fit in but also stand out. And it's amazing that this idea that Something that's familiar is more appealing, even if it has perhaps some negative connotations. It still shows up. Yeah, and, and that's quite interesting also. You know, the importance of merely being exposed to something. We've done some research on negative publicity, for example, that shows that even negative publicity can actually help in some cases because it makes people more aware of your product or your brand. If they hadn't heard of you before and they hear something negative, sure, you know, if they remember that negative thing, they might not purchase from you, but they don't always remember what they heard, remember they heard something. And so even negative things can actually have a positive effect in cases if they make people more aware of a product. Jonah, regarding products and business, your book has loaded some great examples in the social influence in individuals and groups. And as a business owner, how does social influence show up inside the business? So we've all heard of chameleons. Uh, and when we think of chameleons, one of the first things we think of is that they change color. They change their color, their skin to fit their surroundings. Uh, and it turns out that adapting that idea can actually be very helpful for humans as well. So some researchers looked into what makes successful negotiators. Most of us hate negotiating, but they wanted to figure out you know, what makes some people successful when other people fail. And so they looked at hundreds of negotiations and looking across successes and failures, they found that one key trick led negotiators to be about five times as successful. And that trick, very simply, was mirroring or mimicking, almost like being a chameleon, the behavior of their negotiating partner. So uh, if their negotiating partner crossed their legs, the person did the same. If the person tilted their head to the right, they did the same. Not obviously, not in a bad way, but subtly mimicking or mirroring the behavior of others made negotiators five times more likely to reach a deal. And it's not just negotiators. Similar research found that uh, a waiter or 
focus. Uh, if they mimic your order back to you word for word. So if you're looking at the menu and you say, okay, I'd like a Caesar salad with chicken dressing on the side and a Diet Coke. Okay, the waiter says, uh, you'd like a Caesar salad with chicken dressing on the side and a Diet Coke. That waiter or waitress just got about 70% higher tips just from simply mirroring or mimicking what you're saying. And so it turns out that changing your behavior to fit your environment or the people you're interacting with is a really powerful, persuasive tool to make you more influential. It increases trust, it increases liking, uh, and as a result, it facilitates persuasion and social interaction. It's almost like you know, if you and I are talking and we, we find out that we went to the same high school or we have the same birthday in college, we feel like a kinship or we're part of a same tribe. And same thing here, by doing the same behavior as someone else, by uh, doing the same language patterns or the same accents, it makes us more successful. And so for our own sake, at the office, for example, if we're trying to be more influential, whether it's convincing a client, engaging in a tough negotiation, or getting someone inside the firm to do what we want them to do, mirroring them, mimicking them, being chameleon is a really effective way to do it. We shouldn't just listen to others. That's important, too, but we should emulate them as well. And you mentioned a nice piece about competitive motivation, having a peer or someone who's close to your level being a competitive environment, but yet if they're way ahead of your capabilities, actually is a demotivator. Tell us more about that. Sure. And this is really the power of peers to motivate others. Some researchers were interested in, in motivating people. If you're a boss, for example, how can you get your employee put in the extra hours or work a little tougher on a project? And obviously, you can pay them, uh, but that's often quite expensive and, and not feasible. Uh, you can yell at them or threaten to punish them. That also doesn't work really well. How can we get people to be motivated to take action? So some researchers looked into this, and they looked into it in a slightly different context uh, in, in the case of getting people to save energy. So they went door to door trying to get people to use fans more in the summer rather than air conditioners or turn their temperature up a little bit in the summer or down a little bit in the winter just to save a bit of power. And they tried a few different approaches. So one, they tried motivating people by talking about money. They said, hey, you'll save a lot of money if you save energy. Another group of people, a different group of houses, they said, hey, uh, you really help the environment uh, if you save energy. And a third group, they said, hey, you'll be a good citizen if you save energy. Now, everybody liked these appeals. When the researchers asked them, they said, sure, this will definitely change my behavior. But then the researchers actually looked at their energy meters over time, and they calculated uh, how much energy people saved. It turned out that none of those approaches worked talking about money, whether talking about being a good citizen, helping the environment, none of those pitches motivated people to take actions. It was almost like the researchers hadn't come by. But a different approach, there was a fourth approach that was actually quite successful. Telling people that their neighbors are actually doing these behaviors, people are much more likely to engage in them themselves and much more likely to energy. And, and a company called OPAC actually built on these results, billion-dollar business and, and now probably billion-dollar business around this, where they send out mail not only saying your power usage, uh, so you use 3,000 kilowatt hours this month, but also showing you someone in your neighborhood's usage, someone who has a similar home to yours, their usage as well. And I found this was extremely effective in getting people to use less energy. And the reason, as we talked about, is social comparison. When you see that other people are using less energy, you say, wow, 
maybe I should as well. Maybe I should be more motivated to use energy. People have no idea if they're using a lot or a little, but comparison with others, more motivated. As you alluded to, how far behind we are, though, is, is really important, right? Is it okay if we're just a little bit behind others? Can we be a lot behind others? Does it matter how far we are behind? And, and some research we did shows that it matters quite a bit, actually. So uh, if you're far behind, sometimes you can get demotivated or, or give up. So in a workplace context, for example, too often we use motivational tools where we compare people. So the person who makes the most sales this month, for example, gets a promotion or gets an award or the best job customer service gets a reward. That works really well for the close, but it's demotivating for a lot of the people that are not so close. Right? If you're sitting there, man, that other person has four times as many calls I do this month, there's no way I'm going to close that gap. And so they often give up. But if you're close, if you're just a little behind, that's really where social comparisons work, right? When you feel like you can almost taste it, if you work a little bit harder, you'll get there. We actually found this in NBA basketball teams that were slightly behind at halftime, not a lot behind, but slightly behind, are actually more likely to win. Even though they had to score more points to do it, they had to come back from being behind, they were more likely to win because that small gap made them more motivated and made them perform better as a result. That's a great example. I know that business owners and CEOs of companies make major product and marketing decisions based on a lot of facts and information in their businesses, and and they really have long-term effects. What role does social influence play or perhaps should play in the product or service they're developing and their marketing processes? One interesting question is, is how to market position a new product. Uh, and I think as, as marketers, particularly in the startup space, but some more broadly, uh, we think the goal is often to be different, just on how different from everybody else. Our product or service is completely different from what's out there already. We think that by focusing on difference, we'll be more successful. But if you actually look at the data, we think of companies like Google as different, but they actually weren't the first to market in the areas they were successful. They were the second, third, or even fourth or fifth to market. They didn't succeed because they were different. They actually succeeded because they adopted what some other people were doing already. Sometimes difference can be a bad thing, particularly thinking about in the technology space. And so it turns out that rather than being different when new product, when launching something or even pitching an idea, it's not important to be different. It's important to be what's called optimally distinct or similar but different at the same time. And a good way to explain this idea is to think about Goldilocks from Goldilocks and the Three Bears fame. One porridge was too hot, one was too cold, but in the middle was just right. And it turns out that the same thing is true with ideas. So if it's too different, if it's too new, if it's too unfamiliar, people won't understand why they need to use it, why they should adopt it, and and they'll pass. But if it's to the same as other things, well, then they need to do something new in the first place. Right in the middle, though, is is that perfect in-between, that Goldilocks effect or, or just right. Similar enough to feel different, but novel enough to feel new, worth changing your behavior. And so whether you're a marketer or a business owner, it's really important to think about how to make our products and ideas optimally distinct or seem optimally distinct. If we've got something already that's very high tech, technology is really new, it seems very different, well, how do we make it feel a, a little bit more familiar? One great inventor, for example, when automobiles were introduced, people were very scared of them. They were first time, they, they couldn't figure out you know, what these new things were. How could it make people feel more familiar? So he came up with something called the horsey horseless, which was a fake horse head on the front of an automobile. Uh, not only made horses feel more comfortable when that other uh, vehicle pulled up to next to uh, them at the stoplight, but it made other people 
more comfortable as well because it looked more like something they had seen before. Taking something different and cloaking it in a skin of familiarity. And the opposite is, is true too. Very similar, too similar maybe to what we've done already. Well, how can we cloak it in a little bit? Can we make it feel more different or more novel so people will adopt? That's such a fascinating example. And I also noticed, you know, in talking about names in your book and the way that names also fit this idea of optimally distinct, familiar sounding. I noticed alliteration in the name of your book, and you talked about American Apparel and Brooks Brothers. Tell us about how you chose the name for your book. That is a a very complicated story, and we actually spent a while on both the title and the book itself. You're right that alliteration can be useful, just like familiarity leads to liking. The more we've heard something, the more we like it. Alliteration can often make things feel easier to say than they might be otherwise, which can also lead to liking. That's one reason brands use it a lot. That actually, though, wasn't entirely the reason that we used the title. We originally thought of a title of influenced, uh, so with a D at the end. But some people thought it was too similar to some other books that are out there already. So we went with Invisible Influence to talk about the fact that we often don't see uh, influence. But we actually did the same thing with the cover. So if you have the hardcover, you can see there's actually two covers in one. Even the hardcover book sort of has an animated cover. Depending on the angle you look at it, you see one thing or another. And the reason very simply is I think a good cover will not just tell, but show the idea of the book. And so we wanted to show that influence is literally often unobservable. You can only see it if you look at it from the right angle. And so that's exactly what we did. Depending on one angle you look at it, it says invisible influence. But if you you look at it from another, it says everybody's reading it to point out the fact that social influence often goes unobserved. Yeah, it's such a great example of this animation on your website, if any of our listeners want to actually see what that looks like. Jonah, I have to ask you, after all your time studying this and obviously learning to apply some of these techniques in your own life, what is the most important thing that you think that you've learned that you try to impress on others? In terms of the lesson that I've taken away, it's that influence is not a good or a bad thing. We can all think of examples where influence is bad. Uh, We tend to think of it as almost a four-letter word as a bad thing. There's lots of cases where it's good, but not all of them are good. And and so the first step in harnessing the power of influence, and it's such a powerful tool, is understanding how it works. Too often we think about influence as just persuasion, as just interpersonally saying the right thing or doing the right thing to get others to do something. But just as often the mere fact that we're doing something, either whether we're trying to persuade someone or not, may affect our behavior. In a meeting, for example, someone talks first, everyone else is more likely to follow that person and go along with them, even if they didn't necessarily agree from the outset. That person may not have been trying to persuade them, but the mere fact that they picked Candidate A over candidate B made it seem more normative or more right, and so people fell in line. And so really the key here to me, the most important takeaway, is understanding influence uh, and seeing it in the world around us. The more we understand it, the more we can harness its power. Well, Jonah, thank you for joining us today. We really enjoyed our time with you. Thanks so much for having me. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Yeah, sure. So you mentioned where they could find out more and Jonah Berger, just J-O-N-A-H-B-E-R-G-E-R.com is is a great place. Uh, You can find the book, but you can also find a lot of free resources to apply these ideas. So uh, there's a whole worksheet for how to be more influential. There's a worksheet for motivating yourself and employees. There's a worksheet for making better decisions, both individually uh, as well as in groups. So there's a bunch more in there, some videos and some additional tips and tricks for helping people apply these ideas. 
That's great. And thanks again, and we look forward to chatting with you more. Sounds great. Thank you. And we've been speaking with Jonah Berger, author of Invisible Influence, The Hidden Forces That Shape Behavior. You can learn more about Jonah as well as find links to his website for additional content on our show notes at businessownersradio.com. Additionally, Business Owners Radio and Audible.com have teamed up to offer you a free audiobook download of Invisible Influence with a free 30-day trial to give you an opportunity to check out their service. Download Invisible Influence or another free book of your choice from over 180,000 titles to your mobile device. Just go to the show notes at businessownersradio.com and click on the Audible 30-Day Free Trial logo. Thank you for joining us on Business Owners Radio. We hope you enjoyed today's show. As always, you can read more about each episode along with links and offers in the show notes on our website, businessownersradio.com. We want to hear your feedback. Please leave comments on this show or suggestions for upcoming episodes. Tell your fellow business owners about the show and, of course, you would love the stars and comments on iTunes. Till next time, keep taking care of business.